from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World, we're very fortunate to have Major General Joseph Arbuckle, who has been a real leader in pointing out what went wrong, and who should be held accountable in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Major General Joe Arbuckle and 160 retired military leaders signed a letter demanding accountability for the Afghanistan withdrawal. And for Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley to resign. Major General Joe Arbuckle entered in the Army as a private in 1969 after graduating from Western State College. Following completion of the officer candidate school as a combat engineer, he was deployed to Vietnam as an infantry lieutenant. He commanded units at every rank, from lieutenant to major general, including two combat commands in Vietnam and Kuwait. He's received numerous awards and decorations, including the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, three bronze stars, one for valor, six legions of merit, the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry with two silver stars, the Combat Infantryman's Badge, and the Army Parachutist Badge. He is the founder and spokesperson of Flag Officers for America. And I think their mission is very important. They say, quote, we are retired military leaders who pledge to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Although retired from active service, each of us feels bound by that oath to do what we can in our capacity today to protect our nation from the threats to her freedom. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Major General Joseph Arbuckle. Now, General, you and 
almost 160 retired generals and admirals signed a letter calling on Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chairman General Mark Milley to resign after their handling of Afghanistan. This must have been a very big decision for you. How did you reach the conclusion that it was essential to be public in calling these officers to account? Well, you're correct, Mr. Speaker. It's a very tough decision, hard to do, but it falls back on our oath and basically the way we're brought up in the military. And the entire letter hinges around, as you've already touched on, accountability. One of the foundational principles within our military is time-honored is accountability. We hold each other accountable for our actions or, equally important, our inactions. And that's what this is exactly about, because those two individuals, the Secretary of Defense Austin and Chairman Joint Chiefs General Milley, are the two top military advisors to the president in his role as commander-in-chief. So they are the ones that are directly responsible to offer their best military advice to the president regarding operations such as in Afghanistan. And that happens, obviously, behind closed doors in almost always a classified environment. But in this particular operation, I'm sure that they went into the president and recommended that that 31 August deadline be extended and presented that case for good military reason. Now, the president has a responsibility to listen to his two senior military advisors and take into consideration their best military advice in reaching a conclusion. In this case, the president dug his heels in and did not extend the 31 August deadline for the operation. So at that point, the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs have a tough choice. They have a decision. They can either salute and march off and execute that order, which is what happened, obviously, and at that point, adopted full ownership in the outcome of that decision. Or, alternatively, they could say to the president, in all clear conscience, Mr. President, we cannot follow that order because of the severe ramifications that are going to come from it. Therefore, we must resign in protest. And myself and those now 163 flag officers who signed that letter believe that's what should have been done, and that's what's behind it. So let me ask you at a personal level, what was your emotional reaction as you watched this sort of disintegration in Afghanistan? Oh, it's hard to describe. Probably impossible. Absolute disgust, embarrassment, anger, frustration, and on and on and on. Because leaving Americans behind like that, with a conscious decision to do so, violates everything in our traditions and our military, and that is leaving no one behind. In fact, Mr. Speaker, let me point out in the Army, we have something called the warrior ethos, and I'm sure the other services have something similar. It contains four simple points. One is, I will always place the mission first. Two, I will never accept defeat. Three, I will never quit. And four, I will never leave a fallen comrade. We violated all four of those warrior ethos in this particular department, and that is painful for all of us. As you look back on it, do you think this was all avoidable? Absolutely. It all hinged on the 31 August deadline. That drove the compression of all the preparatory actions that were necessary to get there. There was no military reason that I can see whatsoever to stick to that 31 August deadline. In fact, 
militarily, it should have been extended to provide proper time, put the proper resources on the ground and conditions to get it done safely and securely. 31 August was a pure political decision, avoidable. We had no combat deaths for over a year in Afghanistan. And yet, in the tragedy of this chaos of this withdrawal, we had more young Americans killed in one day than any time since 2011. I mean, how can they justify or rationalize the strategy which had that many Americans killed? Well, I think the short answer is that it cannot be rationalized. Again, there was no military reason to create the conditions that put our troops in an impossible situation from a security standpoint within an arm's reach of potential enemies. And, of course, that's what happened with the suicide bomber. That should have never happened. And there is no excuse for it, in my view. You know, I think it's worthwhile for Americans to also remember that in addition to 13 Americans, there were 169 Afghans killed by the same suicide bomber. So the number of our allies who were being killed was extraordinary. And I think the killing goes on to this day as the Taliban hunts down people who were willing to work with and to help Americans. And my dad was a career infantryman for 27 years, and I've spent a lot of time working with and talking with the military over my career. And I, to this day, cannot understand how they could have given up Bagram and thought that that made any sense. I mean, have you talked to anybody who has been able to explain the decision to give up Bagram and keep an airfield in the middle of Kabul? No, I have not talked to anyone that can explain that. Bagram, as we well know, is a power projection platform, best airfield available, clearly defensible because of the standoff distances in the perimeter. The only thing I've heard was a partial explanation, and I don't know if it's accurate or not, was that one of the commanders, it might have been even General McKenzie, said something about not having enough forces on the ground to protect Bagram, as well as the airport in Kabul and also the embassy, so the choice had to be made on one of those to go, and they picked Bagram. But to your point, I don't understand it. I don't understand it because once you give up Bagram, you've given up the embassy. You don't have any leverage point to protect the embassy at that point. Absolutely. I find it mind-blowing. The other thing that was really striking was this is the largest scale of weapons ever delivered to an enemy. As a historian, I think maybe in history, we've never seen, I think, some $85 billion worth of equipment go over to the Taliban, making them now probably the world's largest single arms sales group and able to supply everybody from Boko Haram in Nigeria to the Fort Al-Shabaab in Somalia, etc. Isn't it standard American doctrine that we take all the equipment out before we leave? Absolutely. And of course, that gets back to the point where you have to have adequate time to do that. But I've not heard an explanation as to why there were so many weapons there and left behind either. I'm sure part of it was some of those weapons were going to be passed over to the Afghan army in a time phase transition that would have been orderly and secure. But again, the deadline got compressed so much, in my opinion, that it caused a situation there where we did not have adequate resources 
to remove the weapons, equipment, and supplies, as well as the personnel. And so it's just a catastrophe from any way you look at it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Somebody said to me, at a minimum, we could have flown the aircraft out. The idea we just let them sitting there, and I think it gives the Afghan one of the larger combat air forces in the world, which is not what the Taliban thought they would end up with. I mean, whether they can maintain it will be part two. But apparently the Chinese are already talking with them about leasing Bagram. So you literally, two years from now, could end up with a Chinese airfield that we built, we paid for, and they're quite happily using And as you said, it's a great power projection system for Pakistan, Iran, Russia, the stands. I mean, Bagram is a really big deal. This is almost certainly now going to end up being used by the Chinese who will pay rent to the Taliban. Absolutely. 
And this plays right into the Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese have, having that great airfield there to move people, supplies, equipment, whatever around. And of course, tied to that is approximately $3 trillion worth of precious metals in the mountains there that the Chinese have their eyes on, include uh, rare earth. So it just plays perfectly into the Chinese hands. And we're going to be suffering the consequences from that bad decision for a long time. The Secretary of State, Blinken, had a press conference in which he seemed surprised that the Taliban were actually the Taliban. I mean, apparently they had some weird idea in the Biden administration that the Taliban was now going to moderate. They were going to have women members of the government. And, of course, I think five of the members of the government were people who had been originally in prison in Cuba and who were swapped for an American who had become a hostage. And one of them has apparently a $10 million bounty on his head as a terrorist. I mean, I can't understand how not just Millie and Austin, but also the commander of CENTCOM who talked about the Taliban as though they were going to be our allies. I wondered if this is the quality of military analysis we're getting I can't quite imagine how they're thinking about China or North Korea or Russia or Iran, but I found it frightening that even in the military that the ability to lie to yourself about who your enemies are has grown that deep. And it strikes me as a sort of a mental and psychological rot that doesn't resemble anything the military I grew up in as a kid or, frankly, the military I worked with up through the Trump administration. The rate of change has been astonishing. Do you find the same thing when you try to talk to some of these active duty guys? I share your opinion, but frankly, I'm not in communication with many, if any, active duty guys right now. I'm so far removed from retirement. But I do communicate, with, obviously, with retired flag officers, and they share the same view. One of the principles of war, it's time-honored. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. Because if you don't know your enemy, there's no way to defeat your enemy. And... That time-honored principle plays right into what you just said and what we believe. I do not understand how our senior military leadership can think that the Taliban was going to change its spots because they just haven't for centuries. And as you pointed out, putting those five terrorists in the key positions within their, quote, new government that came about as an exchange from the Obama administration with Bo Bergdahl, a traitor, is really just a slap in the face to us. It's obviously deliberate. As an Army guy, are you surprised at General Milley's role in all this? Yes, yes, surprised and disappointed. You know, and that gets into the PC, political correctness, influence in the military. And if you allow me, I'm going to give you my observations and opinion about that toxic political correctness creeping into our military, what we see today. And in my view, it goes back about 30 years to 1992, which you recall very well when Clinton was running. And he ran on the peace dividend platform, among other things. The intent was by Clinton to take money out of the Department of Defense on the heels of the Gulf War, which was a tremendous success take a lot out of the Department of Defense and put it into domestic programs, social programs. And he did just that. He cut, in the case of the Army, from 18 down to 12 active divisions. 18 to 12, that's a huge cut. Other services suffered a lot more 
as you recall, BRAC, Base Realignment Closure, came as a part of that also. And I became frustrated in the 90s because our senior military leadership, even back then, wasn't taking a vocal stand against all those drastic cuts to our military, knowing that at some point in the future, we're going to need that force structure again. And historically, whenever we've gotten our military and gone into another fight, we pay for it with blood. So we just didn't have that kind of outspoken, but yet respectful position coming from our four stars against those two radical cuts. Okay, so that started PC in my view. Continued through the Bush years, it was kind of quiet. Then we hit Obama, and of course, he accelerated PC and pushed it into the military. And we lost somewhere between 100 and 200, who knows the exact number, of senior military officers who objected to the PC influence, either resigning or being pushed out. That kind of set a tone for everybody in the ranks that if you want to stick around in the military and advance up to the most senior grades, you're going to have to acknowledge the PC influence. So now we're into the Biden administration and PCs on steroids. So I think, Mr. Speaker, from that quick rundown there, my view is that this PC culture has over 30 years influenced our military to the point that the people that are in charge right now know that. That's what they know. They've grown up with it, and that's what they're accustomed to. Consequently, that's the way they behave. That then leads into this critical race theory and so forth in the military, if you want to get into that. What I'm seeing is the demoralization of the traditional military and attention being paid to everything except war fighting. Well, yes, there's only one focus that our military ought to have, and that's winning our nation's wars. And there's no place for social programs like critical race theory, Project 1619, and everything else. And they're being pushed as mandatory training throughout the services. And I'll make a kind of a bold statement here, but I believe it to be true. And that is, if this emphasis on these social programs like critical race theory, etc., continue to be pushed down to the very bottom of our military over a course of a year or so, that's going to have the potential to be more dangerous to our military than any foreign adversary on the battlefield. Now, why is that? Because it tears at the guts and the heart of our structure, our military. At the very bottom level, as you well know, trust and confidence in each other is absolutely critical to our military, to include two soldiers in a foxhole. They have to be able to trust each other for their very lives, and that is our ethos. So trust and confidence is the glue that holds unit cohesion together, which is then necessary for teamwork. And teamwork is the way our Department of Defense, our military is structured all the way from the bottom to the top. And that teamwork, pulling together, working well based on trust and confidence is necessary for readiness. And readiness is what you have to have to fight and win. So those are the dots, in my view, that can be disconnected by this emphasis on critical race theory, which is designed to do what? To break us into groups, oppressed versus oppressors, and put us against each other. Now that destroys teamwork. That destroys trust and confidence and everything else. And that's why I say it has the potential to be extremely damaging to our military in the future if it's not stopped. From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet... There's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. I think that this is a real crisis because you just had a 7th century tribal system that outlasted the U.S. for 20 years. And by any standards, Biden surrendered. This was not just a withdrawal. We surrendered the country that we had been defending to a tribe which had endured lots of casualties and had not been able to defeat us on the battlefield but was able to defeat us politically and psychologically. It seems to me that in a healthy country, that would be a real crisis, causing a rethinking of both the Defense Department and the State Department and the intelligence community to ask, how could we have spent 20 years and lose to this kind of organization? But we did. And I find that very sobering, and it makes me worry about the quality of the work involving China or Russia or North Korea from the same systems that have now failed so decisively. Yes, absolutely agree. You know, the bottom line message out of that, I think, is that you cannot defeat an ideology, which is the Taliban, on the battlefield. Yes, you can kill them in the numbers of tens of thousands, which has been done. But when it comes to an ideology that's based on terrorism, religion, or whatever else, they can't be defeated on the battlefield, as I just said. It's got to be attacked in a different way. And not recognizing that, to your point, somewhere along that 20-year process is very, very sobering. In fact, we made a switch somewhere in the middle of that from getting into Afghanistan to prohibit 
it become a training ground and a launching pad for terrorism, which was a proper mission that expanded, as you know, into nation building. And that ties into not knowing your enemy. We sort of got into that in Vietnam, but not near as badly as we did here in Afghanistan. And so being reflective and looking back on it now is absolutely essential. And it does tie into how we're going to deal with the big players. China, of course, is the big winner out of this debacle on Afghanistan in terms of foreign powers. But as you ticked off, there's others also that are out there, Russia with Ukraine and Iran with their nuclear expansion and supporting terrorism globally. How are we going to deal with that? And what's that going to do to the Mideast peace initiatives regarding Israel? How about North Korea? We've always been a protection point for South Korea since we got out of there in the war with North Korea in the 50s. There's no doubt right now that the South Koreans are starting to scratch their head and wonder, are we going to be reliable allies for them in the future against North Korea? And that's going to embolden North Korea to take more strong actions, I think, in terms of their aggressiveness. And how about Taiwan and Japan? We know that the Chinese officials have already made pretty overt threats against Taiwan, saying you better pay attention to what the United States just did in Afghanistan because they're not reliable anymore. We're not trustworthy as an ally. So yes, the entire geopolitical baseline needs to be rethought in our country as a result of this debacle in Afghanistan. It's amazing to me that people like Secretary of State Blinken and others were not able to communicate to Biden that it's not just about Afghanistan. This changes our believability in the entire world. I mean, everybody on the planet's watching us. And I think that people who have been pretty confident six months ago are now scared to death that the United States is simply totally, utterly unreliable. And I think that's why your call for accountability is so important, because I think we really have to come to grips with how big a problem this is. And of course, if the news media and the Biden administration have their way, they're going to just sort of cover it over and move on and try to not ever think about it. As far as they're concerned, Afghanistan's over. Let's talk about something new. But I think, in fact, in its impact on the world, Afghanistan's going to be a factor for 5, 10, 15 years. And it's going to be a negative factor until somewhere the United States has to prove once again that we are both reliable and dangerous, which we're not. Let me switch gears on you, General Arbuckle. As I understand it, you now have the Flag Officers for America partner with the Committee to Support and Defend. Can you tell us what this program is all about? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. The Committee to Support and Defend is a website that's run by the American Constitutional Rights Union. And it's a great place, this website, Committee to Support and Defend.org, for any veteran or any civilian to go and find their two letters, which basically mirror the letter that the retired flag officers have signed requesting accountability for the actions in Afghanistan. And so by going there, if you're a veteran, you'll find a letter and you can add your name to it. And if you're a civilian, of course, as I said, there is another companion letter. But it's a great place for people to go and express their dissatisfaction who are not retired flag officers. And we're going to have that on our show page as a link so people will be able to go straight there who want to show their support for what you're doing. Good. Well, I have to give total credit to the people that run the ACRU in that regard, but we have been working with them because 
our little team for Flag Officers for America is quite small, and there's not much else we can do beyond what we are doing right now. But the ACRU has more assets, and it's a great organization. Listen, I really appreciate your citizenship and your courage and your continued involvement. I look forward very much to hearing from you in the future, and I hope you'll keep pushing because I think the very safety and security of America requires us to confront how bad this problem is and to insist on accountability. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. And I would point out here that there is another letter that people can see at our flagofficersforamerica.com site, and that is the open letter that we have about 219 flag officers have already signed back on 10 May. And this one's extremely important, as you as a historian will appreciate, because it starts out by saying our nation's in deep peril. And we're in a fight for our survival as a constitutional republic like no other time since our founding in 1776. And here's the overarching theme of this one that people, I hope, will start and begin to understand. The conflict is between the supporters of socialism and Marxism versus supporters of our constitutional freedom of liberty as defined in our Bill of Rights. We are at a struggle for our survival right now as a constitutional republic. And those in charge of our government both the administration and senior leaders in Congress are reflecting the socialist and Marxist ideology through their policies and their actions. And this is extremely dangerous to our nation, as you know. No, I couldn't agree more. I think that this is one of the great crises in American history. Thank you very, very much for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's been an honor to be with you, and thanks for your great continued work as a true American patriot. Thank you to my guest, Major General Joseph Arbuckle. You can learn more about the letter and the efforts of Flag Officers for America and the Committee to Support and Defend on our website at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, Somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids. No plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. If you haven't heard, it's a good idea to fit probiotics into your daily routine. Fortunately, Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls make that so easy. These adorable little pearls couldn't be easier to take, and they support both digestive and vaginal health, all because of the probiotics. There are actually one billion active cultures protecting against occasional bloating, constipation, and digestive discomfort, all in one tiny little pearl. To learn more about Nature's Way women's probiotic pearls and how they can fit into your routine, visit naturesway.com.